If you would, take your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. This morning, obviously, we have the privilege of hearing our children sing of the birth of Christ. And you kids, by the way, did an excellent job. Thank you for blessing us with your singing and turning our hearts and minds to the Lord. It's a reminder that music and singing can have a profound impact on us at all ages, but especially in our younger years. There are songs that I learned in my childhood, probably you did the same, that still ring in my ears. I can go years without singing them, and then when the melody begins, I immediately know the lyrics simply because I learned them as a child. I think that's especially true of us at the Christmas season because there are certain traditional songs that we sing on an annual basis. When I was a young boy in our church growing up, we yearly had a Christmas play and and a a musical, the adult choir would sing and the kids would reenact the the birth account of Christ and for three years in a row I was one of the three kings and so I sang a different solo each year depending on which king I was playing as we sang the song We Three Kings and that song is now stuck in my mind and every time I hear it it's connected to that event in my life but that song in particular is a great example of how certain embellishments get added to the Christmas story that actually don't align with the truths of Scripture. Because while that song is a fun song to sing, its very title betrays the fact that tradition has been added to the account. The song is entitled, We Three Kings, but upon further study of the Magi in Matthew, we learn that actually they likely weren't kings, and there's no real indication that there were only three of them. There were three gifts that were given, but there may have been more uh, in this group of magi that came. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's sinful or wrong to sing the song, We Three Kings. That's not my point at all. My point instead is this, and that is that the biblical accounts of the birth of Christ are real, inspired, historical accounts. And therefore, the details matter. These are real people, and these things really happened And God has recorded them for us in Scripture because he intends for them to change our lives. The details of the birth account of Christ are not just to fill our minds with uh, historical facts, although they are historically true. It is to draw our hearts to the Savior, to help us to come to understand theological truth. And so this week and next, we're going to take some time to unpack particularly Matthew's account of the visit of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. And it's my prayer that as we look at this historical account, the Lord will help you as he helps me to again be in awe of the baby in the manger who is in fact the God-man, Christ Jesus himself, who's worthy of our worship. Now, as always, before we dive into our actual text, it's important for us to have some background information, specifically about the book of Matthew. It's important for us to remember that each of the gospel writers wrote their inspired words to make a certain point about Christ. Understand that no gospel writer included everything that Jesus said or did. That would be impossible, as as the, uh, the Apostle John says in his gospel. There's not enough books in the world to contain all that Jesus did. So they had to be choosy. They had to choose certain accounts of the the life and ministry and teaching of Christ to teach us something about Christ. 
each of the gospel writers has a theme, something about Jesus they want to highlight. And the gospel of Matthew specifically highlights the fact that Jesus is king. Jesus as king is the theme of Matthew. And when you read the the gospel account with that lens, you start to see how he proves that fact over and over again. In fact, he begins his gospel with three proofs of the fact that Jesus is king. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we have the first proof that Jesus is king. I've called it the Messiah's royal genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be tempted to think that's an odd way to open a book. If you're trying to capture the attention of your reading audience, uh, a genealogy may not be the best way to go. Well, certainly if you're writing a novel, that might be true. But if you're writing an account of the Christ... And seeking to prove that he is none other than the Christ child born from the, the Davidic bloodline as prophesied, then a genealogy is the, a great place to begin. And that's why Matthew begins there. Because he proves that Jesus Christ by birth uh, had the bloodline of David as was prophesied of the Messiah. Therefore he had the credentials. But there's a second proof at the end of chapter 1. It's actually the second proof that we studied last Christmas season. I'm sure you remember everything that I said then. But proof number two is the Messiah's supernatural conception. And that is that Jesus was born to Mary when she was, in fact, a virgin, which also was prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14. And so this too proves that Jesus is king. He's the Messiah king because of his supernatural conception. But now that leads us to the third proof, which is the proof that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. And we see the appropriate response to Jesus as king. The third proof is this, the Messiah's rightful worship. The Messiah's rightful worship. Over the next two weeks, we'll study Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. But this morning, we'll just be looking at the first six of those verses. So let's look now and read together Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, the theme of this section is really pretty simple. And it's this. Jesus is the Messiah King, and therefore worthy of our worship. Jesus is the Messiah King, and therefore worthy of our worship. These verses can, are really unfolding a narrative account. It's a, it's a story, but it's a historical account. These are real events and real people, but it unfolds in the same way that a, a movie or a novel might, where there are different scenes that happen one after another. So we'll handle each of these scenes, if you will, one at a time. Now, I have to tell you up front 
there's a lot of historical information that we'll have to cover along the way. Because we have to make sure that we understand what's happening here in the same way that the original audience would. But I promise you, over the next two weeks, as we look at those historical details, you will see that they have value. Because only when we understand those details do we understand the weightiness of the application of the text. So stay with me. Go with me there, if you will, in your mind as we walk through this narrative and learn who these people are and what their significant significance was. And then we'll learn the significant theological truths that come along from that story. Let's look at the first scene that begins in verse 1. Scene 1 is an unlikely entourage. An unlikely entourage. Before getting into the heart of the narrative, Matthew first gives us two important uh, sort of setting items. Items that lay the foundation for what's to come. The first thing that he tells us is in verse 1 here. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In Chapter 1, Matthew says that Mary gives birth to Jesus at the end of the chapter, but he doesn't mention where. He doesn't mention the place that that happened. So he opens chapter 2 by telling us that key detail, that it was, in fact, in Bethlehem. And that's because Matthew knows, as you know, the birthplace of Christ is important. It's significant. It, in fact, ties back into this theme of the fact that Jesus is king. You understand that it was prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Christ child would be born in the city in which David was born, the city of Bethlehem. And so again, he's opening up this description in chapter 2 with this key detail that Jesus has the credentials to be the Messiah King because he's born in the appropriate place. But also Bethlehem will come into focus as a key part of this historical event. But that's followed by a second historical fact that's also important. Look back at the text in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. In the days of Herod the king. Now it's really important that we don't just blow by that statement. Because that's a key detail. The mention of Herod as the king would have immediately brought up a, a, a frame of reference for the original audience. Not just a time period. I, I think it, it helps us understand that these events likely took place in the year 4 AD. It helps us sort of pinpoint the time in history. That's true. But more than that, when the original audience heard the name Herod, specifically Herod the Great, who this refers to, it would have not only given them a frame of reference, but some emotions would have begun to arise in their heart. They would have felt a certain way about this political moment in Israel's history. It's no different than the way that we have feelings about politicians and political moments throughout our history in the United States. If I start to tell you a story by mentioning the name of a key political figure, you immediately have a framework for what was happening in our country at that time, and you might even have some emotions, either good or bad, about the person I'm talking about. I'll just give you an example. If I say, hey, the other day I was listening to a speech by President Biden, you immediately have a framework for that. You may be able to even hear his voice and his cadence and how he talks as I tell you what he said. And you unlikely, or you, or you very likely have feelings about that as well, either good or bad. And the same token, if I were to say, hey, I was reading a speech by Abraham Lincoln, 
the other day. You, again, have a framework for what was happening in our country at that time and probably have some feelings about Abraham Lincoln. Though Herod would have been dead by the time Matthew wrote his gospel, because he dies really quickly after these events, he died in the year 4 AD, the people still had a fresh memory of Herod. They had feelings. In the same way that you have feelings when I say different political figures, they have feelings, and they also understand what was happening at that time. But we're so far removed from that that when we read Herod, it's just a cold, dead name to us. So let's fix that. Let me, let me help us understand what would they have felt? What would they have thought of when they thought of this time period in which Herod ruled? Because it comes into play in the, the sort of emotion behind the story that Matthew is telling. Well, as I mentioned, this is Herod the Great. When you read the New Testament, you'll see the name Herod come up several times, especially in the book of Acts. It comes up several times, but it's not always talking about this Herod. Herod the Great was the first Herod who was king. He had sons that he named Herod, who had sons that they named Herod, and so on and so forth. And that's why you keep seeing different Herods popping up in the scripture. But this is the first one, Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is ruling underneath the the overarching umbrella of the Roman Empire. You understand this. The Romans were ultimately in control, but this is a large empire, and so they were putting different kings in place in smaller regions that paid tribute to Rome. Herod is a king over the region of Judea, but ultimately he's under the headship of Rome. That's important to understand because Herod is a king by appointment. That means that, that the leaders of Rome said, okay, uh, Herod, we like you, you've done some, some great things, and so we're going to appoint you as king over Judea, which essentially means you're going to be king over the Jews. That's going to be a significant fact. In fact, he reigns from the year 37 BC until he dies in the year 4 AD. But here's another key fact about Herod. Herod was an Edomite. That means he's from the line of Edom, or in other words, from the line of Esau. You remember that Jacob is the chosen son. Jacob would become Israel. The Jews would then come from the bloodline of Jacob. Esau was the rejected son, not the bloodline of the Jews. And yet we have an appointed king by Rome, a foreign ruler, who by heritage is an Edomite. Now, how do you think the Jewish people felt about having a king who was there by appointment from a foreign leadership who by blood was from Esau's descendants? I don't think they felt very good about that. In fact, I'm positive they didn't feel very good about that. This is a point of contention that Herod does all that he can do to try to smooth over with the Jews. But there is something good about Herod. Uh, One of the reasons he's called Herod the Great is because he was known as a, a great architect or builder. He built some magnificent buildings. In fact, in order to probably appease the Jews, he built them a magnificent temple. The the temple that Jesus would have frequented, that the early church would have frequented, was a temple built by none other than this Herod, Herod the Great. That temple was destroyed in 70 AD, um, but you can still go there today. I've been there and stood right next to the foundation stones that are still there of this magnificent structure. And I just have to tell you, it's, it's moving to stand there and look at the sheer size 
of just one of the foundation stones that was used to support the temple uh, that Herod built. It's, it's an engineering marvel. And so the people knew him for that. No doubt they were grateful for the temple. It must have been a magnificent structure. And yet there's one other key fact about Herod you have to know. And that is, particularly in his later years, he was a ruthless man. Not only was he ruthless, he was paranoid, increasingly paranoid as he got older, that someone was going to try to usurp his role as king. Somebody was going to try to assassinate him and take over his rule. When I say paranoid and ruthless, I mean this. He killed two of his own sons and murdered one of his wives because he thought that they had a a sort of a, a plan to take over his leadership role. He killed many people uh, just because, on a whim because of suspicion that they were unfaithful to his leadership. That's the kind of man that we're dealing with here when the text says that this happened during the time of Herod. So when the original audience hears that, that's the framework they're thinking of, and those are the emotions they would have had when they think of this man named Herod. In the midst of that, now we come to the place in our text where the actual story begins. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And with this, we have the the introduction of these mysterious characters that have captured the imaginations of, of people for generations. The Magi. And they are the key figures, other than Christ, of course, in this text. Now, I have to say, I'm sorry if I'm disappointing anyone, but our, our nativity scenes are not exactly accurate because often we have the magi there at the nativity, at the birth, on the night of Christ's birth. But we already know here from the text that this happens after Jesus was born. And what we're going to see later is that by the time the magi get there to visit him, Mary and Joseph are living in a house. They're no longer there in the, in the stable by the manger. So... Technically, they shouldn't be in our major scenes. I'm not telling you to go home and burn the Magi, okay? It's fine. If, you want to, if I come over and you have the Magi there, that's totally fine. Just know uh, they came a little bit later. Now, it's impossible to know how long it was after the birth, but it couldn't have been too long. Jesus is still very young. This is still very early on. But really, it brings up the key question, and that is, who were the Magi? Who are these mysterious characters, and what is their significance? Well, you can do a lot of research, and and in fact, I've done a lot this week. There's a lot of interesting things written about the Magi, some debate about who they were. Um, But I'll tell you, if you're a historian, you like history, there's two sources that I'm going to use primarily here that that really helped me in my study. One was MacArthur's commentary on Matthew, actually did a really good job on the history of the Magi. And the other is the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible which is a great set, by the way, if you um, like history, the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible. Those are the two sources primarily that stand behind my study here. But what's important to understand is that as we study the Magi, there is enough historical evidence for us to piece together who these men likely were and what their significance was. And so I'm not going to tell you all the history of the Magi because we don't have time, but I am going to give you enough for you to have a picture of what it means that these men came riding into to Jerusalem. First of all, notice that Matthew says the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And what that means 
is that they were Gentiles. These are not Jewish people by blood. They're Gentiles coming from a Gentile nation, traveling to Jerusalem, likely coming from the area of Babylonia, the ancient uh, people of Babylon. That's the area in which they likely came from. The first mentions that we have of this group called the Magi are in connection with the nation of Media. You remember the Medes and the Persians? Uh, that's the, the nation of Media. The, originally, the Magi were Medes. And we learn a lot about these people as we read the book of Daniel. I encourage you to study the book of Daniel if you want to learn about the Magi, because the Magi were very active during that time period. The Magi functioned likely as, as priests. They were highly respected as wise men. They were often advisors to the king, called in at times especially to interpret dreams of the king. We see that in the book of Daniel. And many believe that they were students of astronomy and astrology. Astronomy would be the study of the planets, stars, outer space. Astrology is really a superstitious study that looks at the stars and the planets and their alignment and believes that it affects things that happen on earth, which of course is not true. But at this time, astronomy and astrology were greatly uh, connected to one another. So they're not kings, but they were likely high-ranking government officials, highly respected, as we see in the book of Daniel. Now what's really interesting to me, as you start to trace these men back to Babylonia and their time period, and the fact that we see the Magi mentioned in the book of Daniel, it's not unlikely that these Magi could have been familiar with Daniel's writings. And I want you to think about the implications of that for a moment. If you're unfamiliar with the history of Daniel, let me just quickly remind you. Daniel was a Jew, but he was taken captive from Israel, or the land of Judah, into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. The people had sinned. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to overthrow Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar takes the best and the brightest youth of, of Judah and brings them and trains them to be part of his wise men, uh, part of the people that would have worked with the Magi. And so Daniel then would have known the Magi. In fact, because God exalts Daniel to the highest position under the king, because God supernaturally allows him to interpret the king's dream, Daniel was over the Magi. And he would have been respected by the Magi. He would have been considered a Magi himself as far as status. So it's not unlikely at all that the Magi had the writings of Daniel. And if, if you understand Daniel, you know that's a big deal. Because Daniel gives prophecy. In fact, the book of Daniel contains some of the clearest examples of prophecy being fulfilled that we see in the Bible. Daniel prophesies nation after nation that will come and rise and fall, and it happens exactly as Daniel says. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, he gives us a timeline that, if you follow that, leads all the way to the coming of Messiah. So imagine this, it may be, we can't be dogmatic here, but it may be because of the origin of where these men come from and the influence of Daniel that would have been well known, it may be that these magi were at least familiar with the writings of Daniel so that when they see the, the supernatural sign of God in the heavens, they're immediately ready to respond and to travel the distance, which likely was about 900 miles, to go and see this baby. That's the Magi. I just love to think of that, the connections that, that may be there of how God brought this to pass, that you have these Gentile men 
perhaps watching and waiting for the final fulfillment of this child that, that even Daniel prophesied. But specifically, it says that the Magi traveled to Jerusalem, which means that the sign that God gave them in the heavens didn't initially point them to the exact location of Jesus. It simply was a sign that signaled to them that the baby had been born. And so they make the journey to the land of the Jews, and they do what's reasonable. They go to the capital city. You go to Jerusalem. And they go to Jerusalem, it it seems, kind of reading between the lines, it seems that they go there expecting that somebody is going to know about the birth of this child and be able to direct them to his location. And so they, they come and they begin to ask questions. But I think there's something important here for us to catch because understand that God never does anything haphazardly. Everything God does is on purpose with a purpose. If God had intended for this sign to simply be a private sign just for these magi, he could have directed them from the beginning to the small town of Bethlehem. They could have gone around Jerusalem, never made a big scene, privately seen Jesus, and gone back home. That's not what God did. God supernaturally, providentially brings them into Jerusalem, the capital city where the leaders of Israel are, And so their questions asking about the child actually become a form of a birth announcement. A birth announcement from the mouth of Gentiles to the Jews that the baby has been born. You see what God has done. He's made it public on purpose so that all of a sudden there's a buzz in town. Uh, to be to use modern language, Jesus is trending. This 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 conversation, people are, are saying, "Hey, did you hear these guys have come into town? They're asking these questions about a baby that's been born." And so, when you start to put together the birth account in Luke to the shepherds, the announcement to the shepherds, and the birth account here of the announcement of the Magi, it, it, it causes me to step back and just look at the magnificence of God. God chooses to announce the birth of his son, the Messiah, to shepherds in a field in the middle of the night, the lowest of the low in Jewish society. And he chooses to announce to the the, the religious leaders and the rest of the Jews through the mouths of Gentiles who have traveled probably about four months to get here to tell them that their Messiah has been born. God is an amazing God. It reminds me that Jesus came from the beginning to be a savior for all people, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich and poor, slave and free. He's the savior of all. We see that even in the way that God chooses to arrange his announcement. So this begins to go viral among the people because look at what they're saying when they come into town. This is Chapter 2 again, verse 1, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, that verb is in the present tense. It's, it's the idea that they're, they're continually saying. They're going around and they're asking. They're asking people, trying to find someone that can tell them. And here's the question they're asking. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, there's some crucial details in the phrasing of this question. Pay attention to the words that they use here. First of all, they already know the child's been born. He's not about to be born. He has been born because it's in the past tense. He who has been born. Also, notice that this baby, they say, is a king. 
and not just a king, but a king of the Jews. These are foreign people coming to see a foreign king, a king that's foreign to them anyway. In addition to that, the wording of their question makes it clear that this baby is a king by birth. That is, he's by blood, birthright. They don't say, where is the one who will become king? They say, where's the baby who was born king of the Jews? And when you understand the heritage of Herod and the heritage of Jesus, now that becomes significant. We currently have a man sitting on the throne over the Jews who is illegitimate by birth. But now one has been born, they say, who's the legitimate king of the Jews. Where is he? By blood he's been born king of the Jews. He's already the rightful king of the Jews. But how are they so confident? What has caused them to make this this long journey to see this supposed king of the Jews? Well, look back at the text, verse 2. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. We saw his star. Now, I, I think the ESV has a, a better translation here on this particular phrase. The ESV reads this way, for we saw his star when it rose. The, the verb there, the word, actually it's not a verb, but the word can mean to rise or rising or east, depending on the context. And in context, if the men are from the east, uh, they're traveling west. So it doesn't make sense geographically if they see it in the east and then travel away from the star. I think what they're saying is we saw in the east a star arise, the sign in the heavens arose, and therefore we came immediately to the west, to Jerusalem. But the big question everyone really wants to know is what was this star? What is the star? What did they see exactly? You know, there have been a lot of people, scientists, who have tried to argue for some naturalistic explanation. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was a supernova in the heavens. But as we look at the account in Matthew, it becomes clear this is not a natural event. This is a supernatural event. This is a divine miracle that God has done to direct these magi to the place of the Christ child. God, in his grace, for his own purposes, chose to give these Gentile magi a sign in the heavens that would indicate to them clearly that the child had been born. The reason we know that is because we'll look next week at verse 9, and we see that once they get into Jerusalem, the star begins to move, and it moves over to the specific house in which Jesus resides. Now, there's not a comet or supernova in history that has done something like that. This is to be understood as a divine miracle of God, and it also explains why no one else saw the star. We would think that the whole nation would be following this star, but they didn't see it, apparently. God revealed it to these specific men. But what's even more amazing than the star is what the Magi say they're planning to do when they see this child. Look at verse 2 again. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star arise and have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. You know, the, the verb to worship there, as some have pointed out, can be used in certain contexts to mean simply to give honor to someone of great authority and great stature. And I, and I would agree that we can't be dogmatic and say that the Magi knew at that time that Christ was not only king but divine. But you know who did know that? 
Matthew knew that. Matthew's the one writing this inspired text, and I believe that he chooses the exact word that he means to choose because he's, he's doing more than just describing the events, he's directing our hearts as well. And what he's saying is that the response of the Magi to travel all these miles to find the Christ child, to come and worship him, to give him the worship and honor that he is due, that is the right response. That's the response and the call to us. This is how we're to respond to this one that's been born. Come, all of you come and worship him. It's the only appropriate response of a child like this. And yet while that's true, there's unfortunately a great contrast between the worshipful response of the Magi and the response of everyone else in Judea. And that brings us to scene number two, an unnerved king, an unnerved king. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. You know, the Magi roll into town and because of the status that they would have had uh, and the high rank they would have had, and Magi in general were a respected group of wise men, well known, they would have come into town with some fanfare. A group of Magi don't roll into town and people not notice that. And so here come this group of Magi. They may even have a group of soldiers with them uh, to protect them for the long four-month journey to get there. And there's a buzz that begins to happen. And, and they begin asking, of course, this concerning question of where has this, this king of the Jews been born? And we can understand that it didn't take very long for their, their arrival and their question to reach the ears of a king like Herod. And now we understand why it is that he was, well, less than thrilled to hear the news that a new king had been born. And the word here, troubled, in the Greek, it's actually a little bit of an understatement in the way that it's translated. The word means this. It's to cause inward turmoil, to stir up, disturb, unsettle, to throw into confusion. Remember, as I said before, this is a man who went as far as to kill two of his own sons and one of his wives. They say it was his favorite wife. I hate to see how he treated the others, right? This is a man who, who was dead set on keeping the throne. And so when he hears the rumor that someone is saying that a, a child has been born king of the Jews, his antenna went up. He began to realize, you know what, I'm seen as an illegitimate king over these people, and, and now someone's saying that someone who is legitimately from the right bloodline of David has been born and, and is already being hailed as king, I've got to act. You can understand then with a man like that, with that kind of perspective, why he was troubled, and as we will see later, unfortunately, his unsettledness leads him to commit an act of sin that is is as heinous as any that a wicked king has ever done in history. But what's interesting here is that it wasn't just Herod who was troubled by this news. Look back at what Matthew says. Not only was Herod troubled, but he says, and all Jerusalem with him. All of them are troubled. All the Jews are troubled. When they hear this, the whole city apparently is stirred up talking about these visitors and their question and they're unsettled, they're, they're worked up. So 
Why? We understand why Herod would have been troubled, but why are the people so troubled? I think the most obvious reason is because they know Herod. They know his temper. They know the state of his paranoia. And they understand that now when this is called to be a a king of the Jews, that Herod's going to be upset and he's going to do something potentially, a public display of violence to try to quell these rumors and to bring the Jews back into line underneath his power. So they're, they're trembling because they, they don't know what he's going to do. This is an unstable man that's uh, acting as a dictator over them. Well, this leads then for Herod to act. He's already apparently forming a plan, but he needs more information before he can act out on that plan. And it brings us to a third and final scene this morning, scene number three, an underhanded inquisition. An underhanded inquisition, verses four to six. It says, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now stop there for a moment. Herod immediately takes action and he summons the leaders of the Jewish people. Literally, the most powerful people, the chief priests, and the most well-studied of the people, the scribes. The scribes are scholars, and the chief priests are, are like political leaders at this point in Israel's history. Obviously, Herod takes the Magi seriously. If these people, these respected delegates from Babylonia have come saying this, there must be some credibility to it. And if there's not credibility to it, better to be safe than sorry. Herod thinks, and so he calls in the chief priests and the scribes. Now understand, the chief priest in Israel originally, biblically, is supposed to be a man from the bloodline of Aaron that would serve in that role for life, and it would be then passed down to his son. When the Romans take over the Jewish people, they don't really care about that, and they start to put in place their own chief priest, a political figurehead, so to speak, and they move them in and out depending on what serves their political desires. So that's why their plural chief priests come in, because once you've been a chief priest, you retain that, that status even if you're no longer in the role. So he brings a group, all those who are still living, who have served in that role, and then he also brings in these scribes who are basically lawyers who understand the Jewish law. Many of them were Pharisees. They're conservatives. They, they take the law of God seriously. Most of the ruling class, the chief priests, are Sadducees, who would have been liberal in their theology. But he brings all of these into a meeting because Herod has a pressing question and he can't afford to get it wrong. If he's going to act out against this this supposed king, he's got an important question. And here's the question, verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Where the Messiah was to be born. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read that carefully, it fills my heart with sadness. Because that line, that question reveals something about Herod. When the Magi came into town asking about the child, how did they refer to him? King of the Jews. But when Herod asked the question, how does he refer to this child? the Messiah. What that means is that Herod understood enough of the Jewish scriptures to know, correctly by the way, that when these people were asking about the king of the Jews, 
that connected to the prophecies of the Messiah. And so he freely changes the title from the King of the Jews to Messiah, which means that his heart was so hard that instead of seeing this as a fulfillment of the scriptures and that Yahweh was the true God and that this baby was one that he ought to humbly come and worship, he, he sinfully hardens his heart even though he knows it's a prophecy of the Messiah and chooses instead to try and destroy him. Herod was a politician. He stayed in power by seeking to appease the Jews. He built the temple, as we said. He even married a woman with Jewish blood to try and appease the Jews. So he knows the scriptures, at least to some extent, and yet he hardens his heart against the Messiah. Having called in the religious leaders, posing to them his question, they immediately know the answer. Any, any Jew that had been to synagogue for any length of time could have told you the answer, but here is the answer. Verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, which, by the way, helps us see why Matthew started in verse 1 by saying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea because he also knows the prophecy and wants to make sure that we don't miss the fact that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He is, in fact, the Messiah. Herod was right, and he is the king of the Jews. The Magi are right in their description as well. But the reason that they know that this is true is because What's been written by the prophet, they say. Specifically, the prophet they refer to is the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we have this famous prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the place of David's birth. But what I want you to see here is in the quote that they give, they not only quote Micah 5, chapter 2, but they add to it 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, which creates an, an interesting description of this Messiah. Let's begin by the, with the quote from Micah. Here's the portion that's from Micah 5, 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler. Now that's directly out of Micah 5. It's, it, it is Matthew's own wording of that prophecy, but it's faithful to the prophecy given there in Micah 5. Understand that Bethlehem was not a large, prominent city. You didn't vacation in Bethlehem. There was no fanfare connected to Bethlehem outside of the fact that everyone knew it was the birthplace of David and the fact that everyone knew because of Micah's prophecy that it would have future prominence given to it because there the Messiah would be born. But outside of that, there was nothing particularly remarkable about the place called Bethlehem, even today. There's not much remarkable about that town. But having identified where he would be born from this quote from Micah, they also add this interesting description from 2 Samuel 5. Not only will he be a ruler, but he will be one who will shepherd my people Israel. He'll be a ruler who will shepherd the true king of Israel will certainly be a ruler. Go read places like Revelation 19. Jesus will, will be a ruler, and when he comes to rule, there will be none who will withstand him. Make no mistake. But his character defines how his rule will be administered. And he will rule his people like a shepherd. 
What that means is, yes, he'll be powerful. He's omnipotent, in fact. And no one will be able to thwart his rule. But he will lead as a shepherd who cares for the people, who binds up their wounds, who protects them from every threat. The people of Israel had been led harshly by their own kings, followed by harsh leadership of foreign kings, followed now by harsh leadership from Herod. And so they look forward to the leadership of the true Messiah King because he won't lead harshly. He will lead like a shepherd. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy of this shepherd king, Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And yet after giving this accurate and true answer to Herod's question. There's absolutely no indication that these Jewish leaders made any effort to verify the report of the Magi. The text seems to indicate they really did nothing. These leaders who were studied in the law, who knew the prophecies inside and out, who should have been on pins and needles reading Daniel, understanding the the times in which they lived, that the Messiah was soon to come, who should have been excited to hear this announcement, they knew nothing. The Magi come from Babylonia. Four-month journey, one way, which means they've dedicated a minimum of eight months, taking in the return trip, give a month in that region, nine months or so of their lives, they've dedicated just to get a glimpse of this Messiah King. And the Jewish leaders can't travel some six miles to go down to Bethlehem just to see if maybe it's true. We see here in the story of the Magi the outpouring of the incredible grace of God, of what happens when God opens your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. We see the blackness of a hardened heart in the angry response of Herod, in the indifferent response of the Jews. But we see what happens when God transforms a heart, even of a Gentile magi, to understand the significance of Jesus Christ and the links in which they would go through to come and worship him. You'll remember that this has been God's heart from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant in which God promises to Abraham certain things that he will do for his descendants, but he adds at the end of that promise these important words. Genesis 12, verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, that is in your seed, your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. From the very beginning, God's plan of redemption has included people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And from the day of his birth, Jesus has been drawing men to himself, men and women who would come and humble themselves from any background and from any social status. And Matthew's intent here is to lay before you and me this question. How will you respond to Jesus? 
How will you respond? Will you harden your heart with an angry, rebellious response like Herod? Will you respond with indifference like the Jews? Or will you recognize who Jesus really is and respond with humble worship like the Magi? That's the ultimate point of the story. It's why it's here, to help us understand the significance of this person, Jesus Christ. It also clues us in on another theological truth, which is that the only way a person can rightly respond to Jesus is if God first does a work in his or her heart. The only explanation for these people, these Gentiles traveling so far and those locally responding with hatred and indifference is because God had done a work in their heart. And so there is great hope for us this morning in the story of the Magi. Jesus Christ truly has been born the King of the Jews, the Messiah King. And that should give us incredible hope because just as the Magi were, were really unexpected visitors, they, they, humanly speaking, had no reason to travel to see this Jewish-born king. At the same time, if you think about it, what business do we have today as Gentiles 2,000 years removed to come to this Jewish king and worship him? The Bible makes it clear It's not about heritage. It's not about how far removed we are from the events. It boils down to this. Who is Jesus Christ? And if he is, in fact, the Messiah, and he is, who was born to save us from our sins, then he is a Savior for all people of all times. And just as truly as those people that were his contemporaries could come and worship him today, if you will humble your heart before Jesus Christ, believing that he really is who the Bible says he is, that he is the God-man who came to give his life as a sacrifice to God to pay for sins and rise again on the third day. If you will humble yourself and bow your knee in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, then you will be saved from the penalty of your sins, given eternal life that you might be with him forever. That's the good news of the gospel. It's why he came. In fact, it's in his own name. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's why he came, to save all who would come in repentance and faith. Will you, like the Magi, Bow your knee in worship to this Savior King. It is the only appropriate application of this text. If you want to know what the application of the text is, it's really simple. It's this. Come and worship the King. Come and worship the King. If you're an unbeliever, bow your knee in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, the call for us is to come again and again and again to worship the king. We enter in again, believe it or not, into the Christmas season. It sneaks up on us every year, it seems. It comes faster and faster. And here we are with all the, the, the things that come with Christmas, both the, the things of our, of our beliefs and the scripture and the commercialism that it all sort of mingles together. And if we're not careful, we can just float through the Christmas season with complacency. And yet here we have Matthew saying, come and worship the king. Don't waste it. 
Worship him in your words with one another in fellowship. Worship him in your words as you speak of him in evangelism this Christmas season. Worship with him, worship him with your voice as we sing to him and declare his praise. Worship him with your life as you seek to humbly obey him and follow him. But come and worship the king as the magi traveled so far to do. May we here now worship him as God and king.